Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region and the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, my name is David. I am riding solo this week while co-host Yael is uh, out um, with his family, uh, enjoying the arrival of his second daughter. Uh, again, congratulations to him and his wife. Um, so yeah, you guys just have me for this week. Um, and it's quite a doozy of an episode, if I do say so myself. Um we have two great guests, um, the first being Governor Mark Sanford, the former governor of South Carolina. We will talk about his book um, that he has recently published. Uh, we'll also chat about the future of the Republican Party, politics of the day, um, and all of that great stuff. And then we also have an interview, uh, a rather nerdy interview, if I do say so, um, with David Zarek who is a European professor talking all things risk and hazard. Um, that's an issue that Yael and I have been talking about recently, is, is essentially when governments get it wrong um, in terms of establishing uh, what, what appropriate levels of regulation are. And that actually brings me to a couple couple big points that I think are, are worth mentioning um, before we get to those interviews. Um, the first is non-alcoholic beer. Um, so for listeners um, who maybe aren't well-versed in regards to non-alcoholic beer, it is a very, um, it, it is a segment of the beer market that is actually growing quite considerably. Um, it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I can certainly understand why some folks would prefer to be able to have a beer with their buddies or at a baseball game or what have you um, without the alcohol that goes along with it. So I can certainly see why folks like this stuff. Um, but in Canada, surprisingly, non-alcoholic beer is not exempt from the excise tax. And so um, when I say excise tax, that is the, the better word for excise taxes is sin tax. Um, so the government will, for alcohol, will apply a sin tax onto beer for the purpose of um, trying to recover healthcare rela- alcohol-related healthcare costs. And that's part of the reason why alcohol is so, is so expensive in this country. And the question kind of looming here is, why on earth is there an excise tax for a product that doesn't have any alcohol? And so that was something that I had never known um, until it was brought to my attention uh, about three or four days ago. And I started to do a little digging and was like, oh, wow, the, the excise tax actually does still exist for um, for non-alcoholic beer. And so I'm just going to run through some of the reasons why I think that this is really silly. Um, so, the, I mean, the first is that, weirdly enough, only non-alcoholic beer pays the excise tax. Non-alcoholic wine and spirits is exempt from the excise tax. Um, 
So I'm not sure why there's a disparity there. I'm not sure why they exempted wine and spirits but not beer. Uh, but there certainly seems to be a huge gap there. Uh, another reason why it's really silly is it actually makes it much harder for the industry to make these products in Canada because uh, pretty much all of our trading partners globally don't do this. So the UK, the EU, the US, New Zealand, Australia, um, very prominent beer producing jurisdictions, they do not have an excise tax for non-alcoholic beer. Um, and so that obviously artificially inflates prices here in Canada for consumers, but it acts also um, as a discouraging factor in regards to producing these products here. Uh, and and that kind of lighter touch in other jurisdictions is really part of the reason why the industries, I think the non-alcoholic beer sector is supposed to be valued at something like over $4 billion dollars. Uh, in the next four years so it's it's popular i might not be the target demographic but there are certainly a lot of people who are uh, and 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 enjoy this stuff uh, another strange disparity is the provinces have already realized that non-alcoholic beer doesn't deserve to be treated um, as strictly as ordinary beer. I mean, that's why if you're in Ontario and you're listening to this, or really el anywhere, um, you can see these products on grocery store shelves and convenience stores sold along carbonated water and Red Bulls and whatnot. Um, and that's just because the provinces have realized that they are, in fact, different. There is no alcohol in those products, and so they don't need to be sold at a licensed retailer uh, who has a license to sell alcohol. Um, so getting rid of this tax would actually just be following the lead of the provinces who've already rightly decided that it is a different product and it should be treated differently. Um, another big one is harm reduction. So for those who are trying to limit their, their alcohol intake, um, this is a really important one. I mean, whether we're talking about cannabis policy or vaping or or illicit drugs harm reduction is like is a super important uh, concept and we've kind of long argued that those principles really should be what guides government policy um, but there seems to be a huge gap here um, obviously there's a great harm reduction aspect in regards to non-alcoholic beer um, and yet we still treat it the same as ordinary beer in regards to the excise tax so very strange very strange you'll probably hear more from from us on this issue because we're we're going to keep barking about it um just because it, it seems so silly um and it seems like just such a no-brainer um on, on why you'd want to repeal that tax and so stay tuned for more updates on that um we'll we'll, we'll see where this issue goes. We'll see if come 2022 uh, and the fe federal budget that Trudeau will have to announce, we'll, we'll see if uh, if that can get changed. It would certainly be a big win for consumers. Um, another, another important topic I want to talk about is Canada is now uh, just past the three-year anniversary of the Cannabis Act. Um, and so I recently wrote a piece 
for the Financial Post titled, Three Years On, We Need to Relax Cannabis Regulation. Moving away from the one-size-fits-all approach will help make Canada's legal cannabis market more consumer-friendly. Um, and, I mean, first off, I, ha- I do have to give the Trudeau government credit um, for going this route and legalizing. I think it was a big, big step forward um, and certainly the right thing to do. But now that we're three, um, now that we're three months, or sorry, three years post Cannabis Act, I think it's probably time for us to revisit this and have a serious conversation about what is and what isn't appropriate regulation. And so in the piece, and I'll, I'll outline that here, I just go through some very simple examples of what should be done to try and change things. Um, the first big one is just removing CBD products entirely from the Cannabis Act. And so um, a lot of people use CBD products. Um, they're non-psychoactive, so they don't get you high. And in my view, on that distinction alone, they shouldn't be as regulated as products with THC, which is what actually does get you high. And so I argue that first we should get rid of CBD out of the Cannabis Act. It shouldn't be as regulated um, as products with THC in them. That would allow, if, if anyone's ever listened to podcasts, you'll, you'll hear all sorts of advertisements for CBD products to help with your joints, swelling, uh, for athletes in terms of the recovery process after workouts. Um, it really is, it really can be quite versatile. And in the U.S., we've seen really an emerging market of these no-THC cannabis products, which just have CBD emerge, and they're quite popular, but it's very difficult for that to ha- that same trend to happen here um, because those CBD products are as tightly regulated as, um, as products with THC in them. So that's the first big one that I would say needs to, needs to be changed. Um, another one is tax policy. Um, so um, most people don't know that medical cannabis is still um, still has the excise tax on it. Um, for me, this just seems so cruel because most of these most most medical cannabis patients are on fixed income, and at the end of the day, we don't tax any other medicine. Um, so this is this is a prescription from a doctor. And yet we have this weird system where if you're prescribed some other medicine and you go to a pharmacy, um, you don't pay any sort of excise tax. Um, And yet we still hold on to this for cannabis, which just for me seems like a very cruel, cruel money grab um, on, on the part of the federal government. So I would stop doing that, change the the excise tax system to make things a little more competitive um, more consumer friendly because ultimately at the end of the day, the more, the more price competitive and more consumer friendly the legal market is, the more, um, you're going to kind of stamp out the black market, which is still quite prominent. Uh, I mean, it was only uh, a few months ago, I believe that, um, the legal market surpassed the illegal market. Uh, in regards to sales. So I think the illegal market in Canada is still valued at about $750 million a year. So 
there's a lot of room for us to go um, in regards to pushing people to the legal market as opposed to the illegal market. Um, but at the end of the day, we have to make policy changes that make the market more, the legal market more competitive, more consumer friendly, so that people aren't incentivized to buy illegally. Because if products are cheaper, they get to you faster, availability is better, etc. In the illegal market, naturally, that may be where folks end up. And obviously, that's not an outcome that we want. And the last big one in regards to policy changes is just relaxing the advertising, marketing, branding, uh, packaging rules for legal cannabis. So um, the the way in which I view this is anything that is allowed for alcohol should be allowed for cannabis. So a, a cannabis company should be allowed to sponsor events, to advertise publicly, to brand their own packages. Um, to have like spokespeople, endorsements, provide discounts, inducements, which is like uh, if you ever go to the LCBO in Ontario, you can buy, let's say, a bottle of whiskey and it'll come with a little baby bottle attached to it. Um, That type of stuff is all prohibited in the legal cannabis market. And I can't figure out why. Um, I can't figure out why we allow all of this for alcohol. Um, and people generally appreciate that. I think if the government were tried, were to try and really crack down on that for alcohol, um, citizens would be rightly irritated. Um, but I don't understand why we have these strict limitations for legal cannabis. And so I think that we should um, loosen those rules, allow for the legal market to be more uh, open and liberalized and ultimately more creative in terms of branding, packaging, all of that jazz. Um, Because ultimately, all of that serves the consumer. It means you get more information, you have a better understanding of what various products are, how they'll impact you, um, all of the things that are really important in terms of making informed decisions. Um, Because that seems to be a big blind spot on behalf of government is when they restrict marketing, advertising, branding, etc., really what they're doing is they're restricting information. Um, They're preventing you from having more information about the products that you may or may not buy. And so um, we are always in favor of expanding that, having people having as much information as possible to make informed choices. Um, And so that would be a big change that I would push for. Um, Before we go to break, we do have Governor Mark Sanford um, and David Zara coming up on this week's episode of Consumer Choice Radio. So please do stay tuned for that. Uh, And we will be right back with you uh, after this commercial break. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio, uh, coming to you on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker 106.7 FM. Uh, It is with great pleasure I get to introduce uh, another repeat guest who is now a bona fide friend of the show, um, former governor of South Carolina, Mark Sanford. Thank you, Mark, for joining us on the program. Great to do so. Thanks for letting me uh, join you this morning. Perfect, perfect. So uh, you've been you've been busy. Um, you have recently published a book, Two Roads Diverged, A Second Chance for the Republican Party, the Conservative Movement, the Nation, and Ourselves. And I have to admit to our listeners, I have not 
Um, I have not read the book yet, but it is expected to be delivered in the next day or two, so I'm excited to dig into that. Um, But just explain to our listeners why you wanted to write a book and maybe some of the core themes that you touch on. Well, I mean, simplest form, you don't invest a long number of years of your life in politics if you don't care. And I care Mm -hmm. deeply. And though I'm out of politics, I think I still have something to say. And I think what I have to say is the same thing that you and a lot of other concerned Americans have to say, which is we're at a tipping point. We're, We're at a crossroads. And if we don't get this right, uh, we're in big trouble, period. And that has real implications for my sons and and a lot of other young folks out there. And so, I, you know, there, there are two things that will kill off a civilization. Um, one is uh, spending gone awry. And you can see this in a lot of different um, countries over the years where they basically get to a crossroads and do they stay where they are, which is unsustainable, or do they not? And if they do, well, unsustainable has a way of coming to an end. So a wreck financially um, is something that will kill off a civilization. The other thing is is tribalism. Our founding fathers were very deliberate in setting up a reason-based republic mm-hmm. wherein we'd come together, agree to disagree on occasion, but keep on moving. And we've lost that of late on both the left and the right. You know, there's a lot of uh, I do it because uh, this is what my tribe says or this is what my side says or this is what the guy or gal at the top says. And Mm -hmm. that's not the American way. So I wrote it because I'm concerned about the direction and future of our country. And I wrote it because I think we're at a tipping point. And I wrote it because I think we're about to have a financial train wreck. And uh, we better watch out for the tribalism at play. I, I, I. What's, it strikes me as a very uh, a very nuanced critique of, of both parties in that sense, which I think kind of highlights your point of moving away from, from tribalism. And I know that, I mean, politics is always in some way a team sport, but that seems to be, um, it, it seems to be that people are rooting for politicians in the same way that I'm a, uh, I'm a diehard Toronto Leafs fan. And even when they're terrible, I will say they're the best team in the world. And um, it, it just like, almost like I've separated the rationality from it, which I suppose is probably fine for, for, for sports, but can have some serious consequences in terms of the politics of the day. Um, Big time. Big time. Hey, and, 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 and to your point, certainly politics has always had a, team element to it no doubt about it i mean i've been a part of politics for a long while but it's at a level i have never seen before and i I think that uh tom rice who represents the myrtle beach area of south carolina said Mm -hmm. it well when you know he said you know what somebody is that that voted with uh trump 97 percent of the time and he paused he said an enemy (laughs) <laughs> and it's true. I mean, I, I, I voted with Trump. If you actually look at my voting record with the administration, 93% of the time. And yet I was viewed as something of an enemy by, by uh, President Trump. And that's crazy. Uh, you know, you, you don't get all the loaf in life in anything. And if you're 95, 93, 97% of the time, you're not an enemy. You're an ally. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's the way it is of late on both sides, on both sides. I, I always have that when, when people ask me, they're like, well, who would you support? Like, who do you agree with 100%? And I'll be like, the only person I agree with 100% is myself. 
and even that changes <laughs> because, exactly, views, right. <laughs> because views evolve. And I mean, I go back, let's say five or six years. And I'm like, I don't know if I really believe that anymore. I think the world is right, changed a little right. bit. Um, so you, yeah, you highlight a, ve a very good point there. Um, on, on the Republican side, because obviously that was, that was where you served both as a governor and as a member of Congress, what do you think is, is really the path forward? I mean, some commentators, I think it was David French, um, who would likely fall into a similar realm of politics in terms of, of you, someone who is um, certainly a, a Republican in the broader sense, but was very much despised by um, Trump and those who adamantly support him. Um, some have suggested that there needs to be a thought of some sort of new conservative party. Some have said, no, we have to hold on. Where do you see this kind of falling? Is there is there a future for the the, conser the the conservative movement or the Republicans with the Republican Party as it is now? Time will tell. We don't know. Um, okay. it, it depends on how this thing morphs and 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 develops over time. Uh, what I know is we can't stay on the road we're on and, mm -hmm. and either the party's going to come back to that, which made it great. I mean, the party's been around for a long time. Both parties have. And I think the view of the left and the right needs to be expressed in, in the national political body. I mean, you know, both sides, both perspectives make each other stronger and that much more clear about what one believes. But but I don't know. I mean, either it's going to continue to go. It's been a bit crazy of late continue to go down that route in which case a new party will form to carry the conservative mantle or it'll come back to some of what made it great with refinement obviously some mm -hmm. things need to change i mean too much of the republican party has been about protecting big business and that's not consistent with the conservative theme uh and so so we will see it's the answer do you have any input on on maybe who some of those shining lights um, whether they be in Congress or the Senate or maybe outside of politics and the conservative conservative movement may be who who maybe share that perspective that you have with the latter half of trying to tweak and refine the Republican Party, maybe to return to um, to some of its its previous successes and accounting for some of its previous errors. Uh, yeah, I don't want to name names because you sure, name sure. one and you leave everybody else out. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I kind of put but, you on the but, spot there. But, you know, I, I would say, obviously, there are bright spots scattered around. Mm -hmm. Not as many as I'd like. Um, you know, the four of us who spoke out early against Trump, not against him, but against some of the crazy that he did on occasion, uh, are all gone. So, you mm -hmm. know, Corker and Flake in the Senate, and me yep. and Amash in the house, uh, yep. it sort of involved political extinction. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think that the fever is breaking and the president is no longer the president. He doesn't have quite the, you know, social media bandwidth that he did before. So mm -hmm. we will see. Um, but, you know, for a while it's been everybody just keeping their head down. And I don't think that that, that should be the way that we proceed in politics. I think that the beauty of politics is saying, here's what I believe and why I believe it. And now, now let's debate it. Uh, mm -hmm. Not uh, let me keep my head down and stay relevant. Um, you know, with due respect to somebody like, you know, Lindsey Graham, who I started out with in politics, 
you know, he was against Trump, then now uh, adamantly, you know, wildly for him and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of back and forth. I, I, I think that's what turns a lot of people off to politics of just, you know, swings one side to the other. Just pick a flavor and, and defend it unless new information comes along that is overwhelming. But until then, don't don't float with the wind. Pick, pick, pick a point of view and argue it and debate it and stand by it. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where I think it's underappreciated how much authenticity sells. And I don't mean authenticity necessarily as like, I have rigid views and these are my views and they will be those forever, but being able to defend your ideas, but then also being able to maybe take a seat and say, okay, things have changed. The world in front of us has unfolded in a different way in which we had expected. And this is why my views have changed. And I think that's why a lot of people. No problem with that at all. I agree with that. And I, I think that's why a lot of people have a tremendous ar- amount of respect for Congressman Amash and yourself, um, because it felt like there was a level of authenticity that was still burning um, that didn't necessarily that wasn't a common theme among others. I know you mentioned Lindsey Graham uh, as someone who was both for and against, and it kind of feels, and I'm curious as to your take on this, is that there were a lot of people who were opposed to the president prior to him taking office on the Republican bench. Um, Their chorus maybe changed a little bit um, after he was elected, but I do get the sense that that many Republicans might feel backed into a corner where at the, the very best, they're going to maybe sit on the fence and just kind of wait to see how this plays out before they say anything defamatory or, or critical of, of Trump. And I've seen this with when folks are questioned about, well, what would you do if Trump won the nomination to run against Biden again? And the answers just seem to be a word salad of, of nothing, uh, of tr- just trying not to commit to something. Is that type of pressure normal? Or is it unique to, like, let's say, the last eight years of the Republican Party? I think it's unique. Uh, again, th- there's always pressure from the top, uh, and that'll always be the case in politics. But it is acutely so here lately, and I, I think that that's the problem. Um, again, you want to avoid tribalism. Tribalism will kill off the very essence of what made our country great, which was being reason based mm-hmm. uh you come from the left and i come from the right or i come from the right and you come from the left on this particular issue well now we have the start of a conversation but if it's simply because i said so you you lose the ability to come together with disparate viewpoints and if you got 300 plus million people you're gonna have a lot of disparate viewpoints and reason and argue together it, it mm-hmm. creates no room for debate, conversation, and ultimately compromise that is essential to the working of an open democratic political system. Yeah, and, and, not, and not to take all of the time to kind of poo-poo on the Republican Party. We do see this with the Democrats, especially if you look at um, how Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema have been treated in regards to some of these infrastructure votes, where they're basically saying, hold your horses. There's a lot in here I don't like. Maybe maybe I don't want to vote in favor of this and they're being harassed in bathrooms and all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff. So we are seeing this um, take for form on the other side of the aisle, which I think just makes the overall problem worse. 
um, in the, in that regard. And so do you, do you see it maybe getting worse with the Democrats moving forward or have they done a better job, let's say, of of tempering that that cult of personality or however you want to describe um, that process? No, you don't want to be Joe Manchin these days. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, we served together as governors and those are lonely posts. I mean, you talk about getting political pressure. Uh, that means a lot of folks, you know, not necessarily from West Virginia, where I think his viewpoint would be better received. Mm-hmm. But, you know, national Democrats from across the country making some noise, fussing at them, making, you know, you know, like you're saying, fussing at somebody at the airport. I mean, they've changed it. Think about this. They've changed the protocol with regard to entry and exit from national airport. It used to be congressman, senator, you know, flew in at the beginning of the week, fly out at the end of the week, and you, some staff would pick you up at the, uh, the edge of the airport. Now they've changed it. And you can request, and apparently many do, uh, Capitol Hill police meet you from the time you get off the plane because of, you know, folks getting harassed and badgered and whatnot. Yeah. Some of that's good. I mean, I think that, you know, back home, bring it on. I mean, uh, people ought to be accountable to the folks that they represent. And yeah, they ought good to be, point. you know, but, but, but the idea that at the national airport, you know, that, that's a telling sign that for the first time in the history of our Republic, now people are being met by Capitol Hill police at the airport to escort them from there into their, you know, their office building in the Capitol. Yeah. That, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that is that is not good. That is not good. Well, uh, Governor Sanford, it has been a pleasure as always to have you on the show. Uh, I very much look forward to reading your book, and I encourage our listeners to to take a look for that either in their bookstores or online where they can purchase that. That is Two Roads Diverged, A Second Chance for the Republican Party, the Conservative Movement, the Nation, and Ourselves. So thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you. You take care. You as well. Yes, sir. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio coming to you from on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario, and on the Big Talker 106.7 FM out of Wilmington, North Carolina. I have the pleasure of introducing our next guest, David Zarek, otherwise known as The Risk Monger. Uh, he is an EU risk and science communication specialist and a professor at Odyssey University College. Thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you very much, David. You should also mention that I am also Canadian coming from the Niagara region. Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> so not very far from where I am. I'm actually uh, based in Oakville. So you, you're from just down the road, about 45 minutes. That's great. Um, so I wanted to have you on the program. I've seen uh, a lot of what you've tweeted and written about in regards to when governments uh, or regulators really go awry in terms of evaluating risk and hazard and things like that. Can you explain to our listeners, almost in layman terms, what the difference between hazard and risk is, and then provide some examples of where we get some really wonky policy suggestions? Uh, in fact, one of the things that's important to realize is that a lot of people today are equating risk with hazard, but mm-hmm. uh, there, there are some big differences that are quite important. Uh, the first thing to realize is that when you, uh, when you have a hazard, you, there are hazards everywhere, but it's our question of exposure. 
Uh, how are we exposed to something? There's a car on the street outside of my window. I'm not exposed to that car. And so although that car is indeed a hazard, it's not a risk. So, so risk equals hazard times exposure. And the entire risk management process is one of reducing the exposures to some things that may be hazardous, uh, to what is sometimes called the Alara principle, as low as reasonably achievable. So uh, if, for example, um, we understand that aspirin does a very good job to you know, ease pain or reduce headaches, uh, we will expose ourselves to the chemicals in an aspirin to get the benefits. Now, one aspirin or two aspirins is very good uh, to solve a problem. 20, 25 aspirins are not. So if I expose myself to too many aspirins, I am indeed taking a risk. Mm -hmm. So the job of the risk manager is to be able to determine the level of a safe exposure and uh, therefore try to reduce any, uh, any risks to hazards while still having the benefits mm -hmm. because it, we do expose ourselves when there are benefits. I will cross the street. You know, why did the risk monger cross the street? <laughs> I will cross the street if I see a benefit to that, but I yep. therefore must address the exposure uh, to any hazards that I'm taking. Going outside involves enormous hazards, uh, but I've come to be able at a certain point uh, to control those. Now, What's happening in policy today is that we are no longer really using risk management anymore. We're using something else, which is called uncertainty management, which means that if I'm uncertain about any hazard mm -hmm. and levels of exposure, because we may not know whether two aspirins is actually safe for everybody. There may be one person out of a thousand mm -hmm. who may have a bad reaction to an aspirin. So therefore the solution when you're uncertain is to remove the hazard. And that is usually done by a tool called the precautionary principle. Precautionary principle is not risk management, it's uncertainty management. Yep. But it's much easier for a policymaker because you don't have to worry about any bad decisions uh, happening. Although um, when you think about it, uh, precautionary decisions do lead to an enormous loss of benefits at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in the way in which you describe um, hazard risk, and it, it brings me to a couple big policy areas that I've recently written about. I know you've talked about them. PFAS is one, glyphosate is another. There's really a long list of areas where they've fallen into that uncertainty category. And, and in my opinion, at least very, very much overreacted. Um, before we started recording, you and I were chatting. My my favorite headline to to exemplify this, and I'd love for you to weigh in, was when we saw headlines that said Cheerios contain cancer causing herbicide. Um, and I mean, obviously, for the person who is not well versed, that would be a very alarming headline. Um, but if you dig a little deeper, it really boiled down to the inability to discern between hazard and risk um, and, and what that entails. So if, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on at least that particular case um, well, and how that's kind of developed. The herbicide, of course, is glyphosate that they mm -hmm. found in trace levels because in fact, glyphosate can be used in, you know, in 
and detected today in the parts per billion range. Now, mm -hmm. part per billion is like one second every 320 centuries. So it's a rather small amount. Uh, but because we're uncertain at what level, uh, people would say, therefore, ban all glyphosate because uh, we're detecting it in Cheerios. But at what level? Um, in fact, it's even a question whether it was detected or whether it was a shadow in a chromatograph that, was, that had shown <laughs> up. But the, uh, I, I think at the levels that uh, were released, I think this is the Environmental Working Group who did the first one, uh, they, you'd have to eat about 3,000 boxes of cereal a day to expose yourself to a level of risk. Glyphosate has a very low risk uh, by any standards. If you look at the, um, the, the what they call the um, LT50 range, of how much you'd have to, uh, uh, you know, how how much you'd have to expose yourself to a chemical in order to, uh, you know, suffer any consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, it's below levels that you would find in products that are in chocolate or in okay. uh, biscuits. So it, it's actually very very low, but. Um, people are not worried about chocolates or biscuits and no. uh, they, um, they're also not paid by industries that will benefit if a herbicide was taken off the markets. So yes. You can see and, and, and they don't necessarily have the foresight, uh, to realize what modern agriculture would look like. Or any pathology. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my, fa my, my favorite was when they were detecting glyphosate. And I mean, if you're looking for it, you'll find it anywhere. You'll find anything uh, uh, if you look for it hard enough with the detection devices we have now. But my favorite was when they found uh, traces, very small traces, again, of glyphosate in red wine and beer. Now, um, to say that we cannot prove that it's not a carcinogen, although this is itself a little bit of... Um, uh, uh, some rather interesting scientific gymnastics by people who were paid by U.S. tort lawyers yes. to deliver that decision. But um, if you, even if you were to accept at trace levels that it might be a carcinogen, the level of ethanol in the beer or the wine is a far greater risk to cancer than anything near. Like we're talking yes. million fold times more, <laughs> but but we enjoy the benefits, and so we don't actually look for carcinogens there. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yes. Don't. Uh, I think that would be one area where the environmentalists would be unwise to dive into because a lot of people would be rightfully angry if they were coming for your beer and wine. Uh, another one that we've touched on recently is PFAS, um, which commonly referred to as man-made chemicals. And there's been a growing push in the EU and the US to basically declare them all, all 4,700 of those chemicals hazardous and uh, apply some heavy restrictions. And from my point of view, there certainly are some very legitimate examples of where it's a problem and contaminate if they're dumping C8 into waterways or um, other kind of horrific examples. But then when you dig a little further, you look at like how cell phones are made or various medical technologies that rely on this type of stuff. Um, I'm curious as to what your take is on how that, that debate has developed in either the EU or in the U.S., well, there, there are several problems here. Uh, first of all, there's a question, can we trust anything man-made? Uh, we don't give the same scrutiny to anything that is considered uh, natural because it's, it's natural, it's fine. <laughs> uh, 
and so we have, first of all, an artificial dichotomy, uh, which is which, which is a religious belief. Uh, if you say everything natural is good, as it says in the good book, uh, <laughs> and everything uh, man-made, well, we can't trust man, uh, the fallen angels, so we must we, we must remove it. Uh, well, you're, you're going to get some very strange and dangerous policies, and also I don't think you're going to be able to survive as a species at the present rate that we're at. So that that's the first problem: is this man-made natural dichotomy. The second thing is um, that once again. I, and, I, and I did work 15 years for a chemical company, and that's one of the reasons why I'm called a shill all the time, although I, I did stop in 2004, but, uh, mm -hmm. but shill always a shill, I guess. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, I, I think one of the things uh, to realize is that we manage the risks. I, and we are able to reduce exposures and we're able and uh, working in a factory where you know that a spark could lead to an explosion uh, you take care and this is what mm -hmm. risk manage management is all about but if you don't but if you don't understand what risk management is then uh, you have to remove anything that might be hazardous off the market there's yeah. a deep problem here though David sorry I, I don't want to no 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 you, you're good go one step deeper um we also have this rather strange uh, idea that uh, the only things that we should allow is what keeps us safe now what is safe safe is an emotional concept uh and it's also very much a relative concept what may be safe for me uh may not be safe for uh my my child or in fact may not be safe for my neighbor who has a different threshold of understanding of uh, of, of risk uh, mm -hmm. maybe more risk averse and so the more we talk about safe the more we're getting into this rather strange focus because in reality nothing is safe and what we actually should be doing and what risk managers do is they talk about safer okay so this is safe but let's see if we can make it safer you know how safe is safe enough uh, once again, what's reasonable. Um, and if we approach these questions with safer, um, is there a safer way to manage these chemicals so we can enjoy the benefits that they're used for? Um, is, uh, you know, is there a way that uh, it's the, the, the technologies can be made safer and less uh, you know, problematic for the environment? But not the idea, is it safe? Yes or no, tick the box or, or ban it. Now, let me just take an example. Mm -hmm. um, when the vaccine started coming up, for, first of all, with the whole coronavirus, uh, there was no risk management. Nobody, you know, we waited till people got sick and mm -hmm. started coming to the hospital. And then we took the precautionary principle, lock everyone down. Yep. There should have been a sense when the virus started to spread to, first of all, you know, protect vulnerable populations, you know, mm -hmm. reduce exposure. The, you know, those most at risk, meaning in, in old age homes. Um, problem started in March. We didn't actually start getting PPE equipment to rest homes in most countries till mid-May, June. Um, so that's already there. there. There was no risk management. The only thing we do is take precaution, lock everyone down. No benefits, too bad. You lose benefits, but that's mm -hmm. life. Um, so we didn't have a risk management strategy in place. Now, on top of that, we kept promising our population, if you stay at home, you're going to be safe. 
that was probably the worst advice you could have. The, the, what, the, what the risk manager should have done if we had risk managers at the time is say, look, this virus is kind of strong. I strongly suggest that you try to reduce your risks. Um, and that includes, for example, eating well, losing weight. If you do get the virus, this is how you'll survive it uh, until we get a vaccine. Uh, try as well, reduce your stress, exercise as much as you can, and uh, make sure that you sleep well. Instead, we lock everyone up. They're not exercising. They're not sleeping well. They're all stressed out. They're taking a lot of drugs and, and beer to handle this stress. So they're sure. gaining. They're doing everything they were not supposed to do to manage a risk. Mm -hmm. But we told them if they stay at home, they'll be safe. And that was the wrong advice. But finally, we did get vaccines out. Mm -hmm. And what happened? Well, we found out with uh, one of the early vaccine results that I think seven people in Germany had blood clots after, after maybe 100,000 vaccines. Now, we're not even sure this is, this is in line with normal blood clot results. Yep. So people aren't safe with the vaccine. So therefore, we have to suspend precaution until we can guarantee that our public is safe. These are EU officials who are saying this. It's our job to keep the public safe. There is no safe. Yep. And so as long as we look at that as zero risk, 100% uh, safe, uh, well, first of all, we're never going to be, but then the public also expects it. And the public is waiting for us to make sure that there are no risks. Well, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, we're about to go to commercial, but we'll definitely have you on the show again as, as we talk more about risk and hazard. Okay, stay safe, David. Thank you. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Asoski and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on consumerchoiceradio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram, just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
destroy through COVID-19. No more! No more! No more!